It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence on Economist Radio. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Misinformation abounds these days, but perhaps the most pernicious and dangerous falsehood is that vaccines pose a widespread risk. As the most hoped-for vaccine in history nears, we look at the roots and the new blossoms of the anti-vaxxer movement. And when you think of biker gangs, you probably think of wide-open American roads, long handlebars and long handlebar mustaches. But the biker gang scene has long been established in Northern Europe. And lately, things are getting ugly. But first... Dozens of large blazes are burning in Washington, Oregon, and California, many fueled by low humidity and soaring temperatures. Several neighborhoods were reduced to ash. Some residents who escaped were forced to drive through roaring flames. I was wondering what time it was, and then I looked outside and it looked like doomsday. America's western states are fighting nearly 100 wildfires that have killed at least 15 people and razed entire towns. The sheer scale of some of these blazes is hard to fathom, even seen from space in satellite images. This year's fire season has once again come early. For Americans fleeing infernos, climate change seems all too real. I quite literally have no patience for climate change deniers. You may not believe it intellectually, but your own eyes, your own experiences tell a different story, particularly out here in the West Coast of the United States. But that's only part of the story behind the current devastation. Some fire prevention measures are haphazardly enforced or are in need of an update. And soon, the blazes are no fluke and are destined only to get worse. This year's fire season in California has already broken records in terms of the number of acres that have been burnt. Katrine Breig is our environment editor. I think everybody will have seen pictures now of midday in San Francisco looking like a 10 p.m. landscape because the skies ahead are completely darkened by the smoke. And of course, it's not just California that's burning. We've got fires now burning in Oregon and in Washington state as well. And it seems like these fires, these fire seasons get worse and worse each year. And it's tempting, of course, to blame climate change for at least part of that. There's two things going on. On the one hand, globally, we are seeing more intense fire regimes. You're seeing drier landscapes, more dry vegetation to burn, longer fire seasons, and all of that leading to a fire regime that's on turbo drive. And this is true in many regions around the world, from the Arctic to Brazil to California, the Mediterranean and Australia, for instance. On top of that, 
climate factor, in some places you have uh, complicated demographics. So people pushing out into what in the US they increasingly call the wildland urban interface, where you have these sort of houses dotted through, say, a wooded landscape. So in the Western US, you have this double whammy of urbanization of rural areas plus climate change, which means that we are not only experiencing a more intense fire season, but they are causing greater human damage as well. And in the Western US, on top of that, there have been some historical policies that have made the ecosystem more vulnerable as well. What policies are those? So there's a history of wildfire suppression in California, stopping the smaller blazes from removing the flammable undergrowth. And as a result, you get this sort of fuel loading. What that means is that basically you can try and keep the fires down for a certain amount of time. But eventually, because this is an ecosystem that burns naturally, a fire will take hold. And as a result of these decades of fuel loading, it's just catastrophic when that happens. So places like California are never going to be able to eliminate fires. Effectively, if people want to live in these regions, they need to learn to coexist with fire. Well, what does that entail? As you say, once they happen, they get swiftly out of control. Just about every fire expert I've spoken to says that it is possible to live with fire. Everything from how you build a house, the materials that you use, the vegetation that you put around it, all the way out to the community level and how you plan a neighborhood, all of that can be designed to either allow the fire to sweep through and cause as little damage as possible to the actual structures or actually just move around the community. And the result of this is you can theoretically build communities that are known as shelter in place. So when a fire is headed towards that community, people head indoors and stay in their homes for the 10, 20, 30 minutes that the flaming front takes to move through. But if an ecosystem like this, these fires are unavoidable, why hasn't the Western U.S. basically followed those plans so far? On the one hand, this sort of understanding of fire is relatively new. California actually, remarkably, is the only state in the U.S. to have a statewide fire building code for the wildland-urban interface. But the problem is that those building codes came in in 2008. A lot of the science has progressed since then. The building codes haven't evolved with the science. The hazard maps that define which parts of California, which neighborhoods need to adhere to those building codes are not up to date and don't correspond to the actual risk that fire poses to some communities. And then there's a huge problem of retrofitting. The building codes only apply to structures that were built in 2008 or more recently. And there's no incentives really for people to retrofit their houses, which can be expensive. I mean, you speak of California and the Western U.S. as an almost unique ecosystem, yet we've talked on the show several times about fires kind of around the globe. I mean, what are the dynamics there as regards, for example, the influence of climate change versus bad management of the land and so on? Every region is different. There are analogs, of course, and I think the closest one to California is Australia. Other places, the situation is different. So the drivers in Brazil are quite complex. You have a huge problem of deforestation that is drying out the landscape and creating fuel for fires. 
But on top of that, again, you have climate change, which is raising temperatures, also drying out the landscape, also lengthening the season during which fires take hold, and therefore also contributing to this sort of greater, more intense fire regime. And then in other places, the situation is very different. The Arctic is burning now in ways that we really have never seen before. The only significant human influence that you have really in the Arctic on these fires is climate change. You can't blame the Arctic fires on deforestation. So in particular, the fires that are attributable largely or even in some cases almost entirely to climate change, what can be done? The way climate change influences global temperatures is actually quite slow. So even if we were to completely eliminate all greenhouse gas emissions tomorrow, which is obviously not going to happen, you would still see temperatures rise for many years. And that's just because of the complex physics of how the heat moves through the physical system and ends up in the atmosphere. So yes, we absolutely need to cut emissions. That is a long-term strategy for the long-term sake of humanity, but it is not a short-term solution to the very real impacts that we are seeing on the ground now. For that, we need to accept that the planet is changing around us and that humanity needs to change with the planet. And when it comes to fires, that means we need to learn to coexist with fires. So in places that are densely inhabited, we need to apply all these lessons that the fire experts are providing us with. And in places that aren't, say, Siberia, you can't just let Siberia burn. You can't just let the Arctic burn because there's a much greater risk in Siberia, which is the release of large amounts of methane. And so people need to come up with ways of quenching those fires. So addressing this situation is, on a global level, for the long term, we need to mitigate climate change. And then for each specific region, we're going to need some specifically adapted solutions. Katrine, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. This week, Katrine also spoke to Babbage, our sister podcast on science and technology. She takes a deep look at how to coexist with inevitable blazes, how to build better fireproof homes and neighborhoods. A lot of communities in California will have golf courses, and traditionally the thing that you do is you put the houses around the golf course. But then you're basically putting your burnable structures around a non-burnable piece of landscape. So instead, put the houses in the center of the golf course, and the fire will struggle to get across that and reach the houses in the middle. Look for Babbage wherever fine podcasts are sold and traded. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This is 
This week, AstraZeneca, a pharmaceutical company developing one of the most promising coronavirus vaccine candidates, halted its trial after one of the participants became ill. That's no surprise. Their study includes tens of thousands of volunteers. Vaccine or not, it's likely someone would get sick during the weeks-long experiments. As part of internationally agreed standards, pharmaceutical firms go to great lengths to ensure that vaccine candidates are safe as well as effective. AstraZeneca's abundance of caution shows that system is working, which is why it's so perplexing and so dangerous that so many people seem to think dark forces are at work in those syringes. In 2018, a survey was conducted from about 140 countries, and they found that around 70% of people in the rich world are at least somewhat skeptical that vaccines are safe. Wade Joe is a data journalist at The Economist. This is in stark contrast to developing countries where around 90% feel that vaccines are safe. So it, it seems that what's happening here is that people from developed countries have been consuming disinformation about vaccines. This could be because of the so-called anti-vaxxer movement, which is growing in numbers in the rich countries. Why, though? Why has that movement been gaining so much ground, do you think? It's hard to say exactly, but a lot of it seems to stem from a 1998 paper published by Andrew Wakefield in The Lancet. Essentially, that paper found a link between the vaccine for measles, mumps, and rubella with developmental disorders. Mr. Wakefield's papers are the reason why so many anti-vaxxers believe that vaccines cause autism. However, no researchers have been able to replicate his findings since. And it's actually been discovered that Mr. Wakefield had been paid by people suing pharmaceutical companies producing vaccines. Since then, Mr. Wakefield, who's originally from the UK, has moved to the US, and he's turned himself into a sort of self-styled martyr for anti-vaxxers. And so from that highly flawed study, since uh, roundly refuted, the whole anti-vaxxer movement is still growing. Yeah, that's right. It certainly seems like social media is an important transmission mechanism for this phenomenon. So a recent study found that around 58 million people in the English-speaking world now follow social media accounts, which spread this sort of misinformation. Some of these theories are quite detailed and can seem absurd to people who aren't necessarily part of that social group. So, for instance, one theory that's been shared widely on Facebook is that Bill Gates, the founder of Microsoft, is promoting the use of vaccines because he apparently wants to implant microchips in your children. Well, I mean, the, the Internet has no shortage of theories as mad as that and more so, but does it have real-world effects? Sadly, it seems that the anti-vaxxer movement is not limited to just people online. Take, for instance, measles. This disease was all but wiped out in the 1960s, but is starting to crop up again in developed countries. For instance, in 2019, the World Health Organization revoked the so-called measles-free statuses of Albania, Britain, the Czech Republic, and Greece. At the same time, America reported a huge spike, reporting its highest number of cases since 1992. The fear is that even if a vaccine were developed for COVID-19 in relatively short order, the skepticism might result in people ultimately refusing to take it. And in America, in an election year, this has become quite an issue in terms of getting a, a vaccine in, in short order. I mean, how has America's political divide factored into this question there? So the politics of vaccination in America are a bit complicated when it comes to COVID-19. The latest polling indicates that only around 37% of Republicans 
say that they would be willing to get vaccinated against the coronavirus compared with 61% of Democrats. These are low numbers. I mean, do you think this is down to the the anti-vaxxer effect or is it some reservations about vaccines that are being put together in a hurry? That's a good point. Setting aside concerns about vaccines in general, polls have asked people how they feel about a fast-tracked COVID-19 vaccine. Around 75% of Americans say that they are at least somewhat concerned about the safety of the vaccine. Interestingly, Democrats are slightly more likely than Republicans are to say that they're worried about a fast-track vaccine. So it seems like the issue there is that they might not necessarily trust the current administration to deliver a vaccine safely in short order. But putting that and the partisan divides aside, what does all of this tell you about how likely it is that once a vaccine is out there that, that it will be taken up enough to essentially cap the pandemic? If a large chunk of the population, say 50 percent, are worried that a vaccine might not be safe for them, they might not do much in the way of stopping the pandemic if no one's actually willing to take them on. This means that this pandemic could go on for quite a long time. Thanks very much for joining us, Wade. Thanks, Jason. Long before it became a rallying cry for wealth inequality, the term one percenter was associated with something else entirely. Legend has it that in 1947, after a rally turned violent, the American Motorcycle Association insisted that 99% of the motorcycling public were law-abiding citizens. As for the rest, well, ever since then, outlaw biker gangs like the Hells Angels and the Bandidos have adopted the name One Percenters. In the 1970s, they started opening chapters in Europe, taking over much of the drug business in cities such as Copenhagen and Malmo. There is a long-standing argument about whether European outlaw motorcycle gangs are really serious criminal organizations or whether they're basically a place for a bunch of guys to hang out and have a good time and occasionally get up to some criminal stuff, but are mostly a social club. Matt Steinglass is our Europe correspondent. But the evidence seems to be weighing in that there's a lot of pretty serious criminal activity going on. What kind of criminality are we talking about here? So earlier this year, Dutch police found out that a biker gang called Kalo Wago in the Netherlands was allegedly involved in a murder-for-hire scheme. And they cracked open a container on a farm in the south of the country and found a torture chamber with a dentist's chair with arm and leg restraints and hacksaws and pliers and so forth. That had allegedly been set up by a guy named Kilo, who's the founder of Kalo Wago. He was originally the founder of a Dutch branch of the Crips, the Los Angeles gang, and has kind of been kicking around for 20 years looking for the most interesting criminal and gang activity to set up. So in this case, he allegedly had a scheme running where he had been hired to carry out 11 hits by a big drug kingpin. And the police alleged that he actually did carry out five of those. When the police asked him why he had hundreds of messages on his phone referring to hit jobs, he claimed that he was making a movie about the subject. So that's an example of the kinds of criminal activities that they get into. It's often connected to the drug trade. In the sense that these biker gangs dominate the drug trade, at least in the Netherlands? 
No, they used to play a stronger role. They're increasingly sort of a minor player in the drug trade, and they tend more to act as muscle for the really big players. But the severity of the stakes here you can see by when the Dutch press began reporting on the involvement of Kahlo Wago in all of this, uh, a Dutch men's magazine called Panorama that had written a few articles about it was attacked with an anti-tank missile. So that is to say these gangs have access to some pretty serious weaponry. Yes. This is not the first time that outlaw motorcycle gangs have shown that they have access to anti-tank missiles. In the 1990s, there was a huge conflict in Scandinavia that has been dubbed the Great Nordic Biker War of the 1990s. The gangs went after each other with assault rifles, hand grenades, and anti-tank weapons. They had ripped off all this equipment from Swedish army bases, and a number of people were killed. So this isn't just muscle for hire and the like. These are actual turf wars, biker gangs against biker gangs. What's happening in the Netherlands now isn't so much of a turf war, but that has happened in the past. Starting in the 2000s, a lot of the biker gangs in Scandinavia started losing territory to street gangs with ethnic immigrant backgrounds. So the Hells Angels and the Banditos, for example, had controlled uh, the drug trade in Copenhagen for a long time. But a couple of gangs based in immigrant communities called Brothers and Loyal to Familia started coming up and monopolizing some of the territory in Copenhagen. And in the Netherlands, the traditional gangs like Hells Angels and Banditos have become less popular in the face of a number of new ethnically based kind of multicultural gangs. And meanwhile, what does the government do about these sort of shifting fortunes and new gangs springing up? The motorcycle gang zine is kind of a perennial fixture of Northern European life. The government is never going to stamp them out, and that's not really even the vision. The vision is to attack the ones that seem to become most involved in criminal activity. But these are public associations, and these are democratic countries with freedom of association. Riding around on your motorcycles is a lot of fun. They're organizations with strong cultural roots. So this is a popular cultural phenomenon, which happens to be perennially closely involved with criminal activity, and the government is going to have to learn to live with that. Thanks very much for joining us, Matt. Thank you, Jason. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you back here on Monday. I'll be away next week, but you'll be in safe hands. 